And so I think that fundamentally, we have had this separation historically between psychiatry, neurology, and the rest of medicine. And a lot of people may not even really realize that, but in almost all academic medical centers, these are separate departments, right? So there's a department of medicine, there's a separate department of psychiatry, there's a separate department of neurology. They sometimes even have separate hospitals. Right? There'll be a, the psychiatric hospital, there'll be the main hospital. And this kind of separation has really caused a major gap in our understanding of health conditions that really sit at the intersection of those domains. Hello, and welcome to Informatics in the Round, the podcast that's designed to have every kitchen table in the country talking about informatics in the way they can all understand it. I'm Kevin Johnson, pediatrician and informatician and science communicator at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Harris Bland. I'm senior project manager at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Um, Harris or ST? Uh uh, Harris, in the time that we've recorded this, my name has legally changed from Sarah, or I was going by ST, to now Harris. I actually knew that, and I am so proud of you. This had to be an enormous change in every way that I can possibly imagine. It's true, but I have a much better license photo now. <laughs> well, was it really much better, or is this just the you that you wanted to portray? Uh, on point, exactly. I think it's much better. Uh, I've lost some weight, but also much better holistically as a human being. I feel me. Uh, you know, I feel like I'm I'm myself. So, uh, yeah, it feels much better to to see a licensed photo that matches who I am. There you go. So we had a great guest, huh? Yeah. Uh, so we had Leah Davis, and she's a PhD and an associate professor in the Division of Genetic Medicine at VMC. We had her last time, um, or a couple podcasts ago, um, talking about uh, equitable equitable informatics. Uh, Leah, just to remind folks, studies a wide range of traits, including psychiatric and non-psychiatric chronic disease. Many of the projects are focused on identifying and understanding biological and clinical linkages between mental health and physical health. And you know what we didn't talk too much about in this podcast, but I just want to note that in the fall, I will be Leah's student. I'm starting the PhD in human genetics, and I will be studying under Leah. That's amazing. I can't wait for us to talk about that in our next podcast. Yeah. When you're like all nervous and we wonder, why do you seem to have that verbal tick? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why is that twitch in there all the time now? <laughs> and of course, we also had Jane Bach. I think everybody who's listened to the podcast knows Jane. Jane is a nationally known songwriter who has worked with a number of people, including Reba McIntyre and many others. She's impossibly hard to get on the podcast because she's always flitting about from L.A. to other places in the country. But we were able to pin her down. And again, as always, she was amazing. She really made us dive deep into some of the issues around what's really meant by genetics and genomics and how we can actually use that information to improve mental health. What I think is also great is that this is our third segment 
where we've talked about these whole issues of informatics and equity with a bunch of more really interesting people coming up. So everybody get ready because we're going to take you on a wild ride. And uh, without further ado, here is the podcast. So hey, everybody, welcome to Informatics in the Round. Uh, I'm Kevin Johnson. Uh, do you all want to introduce yourselves? Why don't we start with ST? Yep, uh, ST Bland. I'm at Vanderbilt uh, University Medical Center, and I'm a senior project manager. And Jane, who are you? Hi, I'm Jane Bach, and I am a songwriter here in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, I am here to absorb. Are you really in Tennessee, or are you all? Are you mostly in LA? Sounds like you're in both. Both. It is it's about half and half. Because you're really fa 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 now. I understand. <laughs> that's a that's a uh, Joan Rivers way of saying you're super fancy. Oh, <laughs> super fancy. Yeah, as you can see, I'm just so super fancy. But no, um, yeah, just it it works out to about half and half. Yeah, that's cool. Leah, who are you? Hi, I'm Leah Davis. I'm a associate professor of genetic medicine um, at Vanderbilt. And Leah is our special guest today. Um, we have a brand new member of our podcast development team, and I've asked her to sit in today, Ellie Short. Ellie, who are you? Yeah, hi, I'm Ellie. I'm an undergraduate at the University of Pennsylvania studying English and linguistics. I hear that's a good school. Yeah, yeah, I love it. <laughs> I mean, it's okay, I'm sure, but yeah, you know, it's no okay. Vanderbilt. I was good. It's, it's no <laughs> so this year, you guys, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the Penn Quakers and Vanderbilt are both in the NCAA basketball tournament. So it's going to be a fight. Oh. Does that present a conflict for you? For me, no, because Vanderbilt always wins. <laughs> but we'll, we'll see how long Penn can keep up. So anyway, today, as, as, as we've talked about earlier, ST and I wanted to make sure that we really paid a lot of time thinking about um, health equity issues. And we wanted to continue a conversation that we had with Leah, AKA Dr. Davis from a previous episode. Um, ST, do you want to introduce this a bit? Yeah, so one of my main projects uh, that I work on here is called Emerge. Um, and it's about putting genomics uh, and genomic data into the electronic health record and then developing um, different types of discovery and science around those or learning about how um, those data work and interact with uh, clinicians um, in the healthcare system. One of the things that Leah works on um, is something called PsychEmerge. And PsychEmerge is kind of this subset, uh, sub-project, or maybe a dovetail project from um, the Emerge network that focuses on psychiatric and uh, conditions, and particularly around the genomic data that they're involved in. And I, the things that you've talked about um, with me, Leah, um, and things that I've heard about PsychEmerge, I just think that it's a conversation that's real nerdy, but uh, <laughs> I think it's something that people don't understand is going on and can have a real um, impact on healthcare that we do know about. Uh, and one thing that came up in our last podcast were the functional seizures. Mm -hmm. um, and you ended up giving us a little bit more information after the podcast about it. So you want to share a little bit with how it came up and then what you were telling Kevin via email? Well, but I have to ask a question about this because... So do we actually know that 
diseases like depression or schizophrenia now have a genetic basis? Oh yeah, absolutely. So um, really all um, mental health traits have some genetic component to them and, um, and some, you know, non-genetic or environmental contribution as well. And you can think of it as like kind of a, a range of um, sort of how strongly uh, genetics influences mm-hmm. whether a person, you know, might develop something like schizophrenia or something like depression. So psychiatric illnesses like schizophrenia, um, bipolar disorder, uh, severe recurrent um, and what we might call refractory or sort of uh, resistant to treatment depression. Um, those conditions have pretty strong genetic contributions. Wow. Wow. Um, so for schizophrenia, for example, the heritability, um, which is you can think of as like the sort of overall, like the global contribution of genetics to the variation in um, the disease across the population. And the way it expresses itself. Yeah. mm -hmm. It's about 80%. So it's really high. It's really high. Of course, there are plenty of um, non-genetic risk factors. So it's certainly not like uh, deterministic. Genetics is never deterministic in the context of um, these kind of complex psychiatric disorders. Um, but absolutely, genetics plays a, a really significant role. Yeah. That's a question. Yeah. Is, this may seem like a foolish question. I just don't know the answer. Is when you talk about genetic base, when something is genetic based, is that the same thing as hereditary? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, See, Jane, you thought it wasn't, and it was. (laughs) It is a really good question. It's a really good question. When people talk about, you know, whether something is hereditary, usually what they have in mind is, is it directly inherited, right? So, like, my mom had it, and then there's a 50% chance that I'll have it because I, you know, inherited half of her genetic material. That's a little bit different than when we talk about heritability, which is what I just mentioned with Kevin, um, which is really not at an individual inheritance pattern level, but instead at kind of a population level. So here, what we're saying is we're looking at all of these, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, some of whom have schizophrenia, some of whom don't. And we can tell from their genomes that the people who have schizophrenia share more genetic variation that is related to genes in the, you know, expressed in the brain, for example, and is related to the development of schizophrenia in those people. It doesn't necessarily mean that it was directly inherited from, you know, their parents or their grandparents, but that the unique combination of thousands of different genetic variants that each contribute just a little bit mm-hmm. the overall risk of developing schizophrenia is more concentrated in that group of folks who do end up developing schizophrenia. Does that make sense? 
You know, I think I actually understand what you're saying. (laughs) I think I do. I think. And I think I understand enough Mm. to at least be able to move on. (laughs) Well, except I think you do, but I'm not sure everybody else does. So let me ask a question about that. So each of the variants that we find in this population are passed on from parents to children. Mm -hmm. But what you're saying, I think, is that the constellation of variants that might put you at significantly increased risk doesn't have a straightforward mathematical probability as it typically does when we think about heredity in the kind of old school sense. Is that right? Yes, that's a that's a great way to put it. And that's my job. If I can can sort of expand on that, um, one of the reasons for that is that there are actually so many genes and genetic variations that are involved in the development of these very complex neurodevelopmental or psychiatric conditions. So the genetic architecture, um, which is just kind of a a fancy phrase for, um, for the number and, um, impact of genetic variants that contribute to a, a, a disease. The genetic architecture is very polygenic, which just means that there are lots and lots of genetic variations that contribute to the disease. So, so actually all of us in this podcast and everybody who's listening has some genetic liability to schizophrenia, to bipolar disorder, to major depression. We all carry some genetic variation that increases our risk for all of those health conditions um, and some that might be protective for each of those health conditions. Um, and so it's it's it, it's a very different kind of um, way of thinking about the genetic factors that contribute than, for example, if you have, you know, one gene that really like causes a disease when there's a mutation in that gene. It's it's not that kind of of uh, of architecture. And I'm going to say one more thing, and that's just to be just because another way to think about this, which I've used before, is possibilities versus probabilities. So a good example of a possibility versus a probability is if you drive a car, there's a possibility that you're going to have an accident. But the probability that you're going to have an accident goes up if you're driving at certain times of the day, in certain communities, at certain speeds, and with certain cars. So it's not deterministic, meaning if you're driving down Hillsborough Drive, road, whatever it is, (laughs) Hillsborough in Nashville, um, it's a busy street. It's probably more likely you'll have an accident than on Granny White, but it's not a definite. Most people who drive up and down Hillsborough never have any kind of a problem. So I think that's a way to sort of think about this. It's a risk that you take with every little hit in your variations in your gene, genome, without it being any one gene that we say, ah, that one has a 25% risk of conveying this, which means your children have a one in four chance of yeah. having it. And ST, I cut you off. Sorry. You did. I, I was going to say I have a better example than what you do. So I'm right, I'll, just cu- I'll just cut mine out if yours is, if yours is better. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that uh, I think, uh, what most people probably are going into this conversation thinking, oh, there's a schizophrenia gene. Mm. That's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the same as hearing uh, there's a, a gene that's linked to breast cancer. And there's actually a few. And so you're saying that there's a bunch of different genes that might have an impact on your ability to maybe get schizophrenia or your probability of getting schizophrenia. 
Yep. So, exactly. so whose who's, who's example was better? Mine, obviously. <laughs> you couldn't even get the road right. <laughs> it's been a few, it's been like six months since I've been there. There's no I way I was going to say, he's up in Pennsylvania yeah. now, you know. I know. Right. Memory loss is a sad thing. It's so it sad. Is. I know. I hear there's a gene associated with that. I heard. Yeah, there is. <laughs> Jane, you had something you wanted to add. I did. You know, as I'm listening to this, I always have to, because I'm, I'm certainly educated, but this is not the education I have. So um, uh, not my bailiwick, as they say, but it almost I have to kind of not dumb things down, but put them more in, in context that I can relate to. So what I'm getting from this is um, to simplify it. The way I look at it is, you know, my my mother, this is this is true. My mother, um, rest her soul, um, in her bloodline uh, runs depression and it runs rampant. I mean, in some generations, really bad. Um, But I'm half my father as well. Okay, so now, I mean, do I have the possibility of possibly, you know, something coming down from my mother's line, landing in my genes, very possibly. But I also have my father's and that's just kind of an easier way for me to understand. So it changes the possibility and the probability, if I'm understanding it correctly. There are just so many variables. Exactly. And, and you know, the other thing is that no, well, with very few exceptions, there really isn't any one that is going to be sufficient to cause, you know, a a psychiatric illness. Um, They all kind of contribute a very small amount. And it's really like the accumulation of a lot of factors, both genetic and non-genetic that, that lead to psychiatric illness. Hey, I have to bring up, I have to bring up one more piece of biology nerd nerdiness because Leah, you're going to probably tell me I have this wrong. So I'll cut it if I'm wrong, but I think I'm right. Okay. If you were to be asked a true false question, which is your genetic makeup is 50% your mother, biological mother, otherwise, and 50% your biological father. And you said true, you would be wrong because at least some of your genetic makeup comes only from your mother and that's your mitochondria and your mother's cytoplasm of the egg dad contributes nothing in that area and so there are diseases where the genetics that you think of are not the reason you have those diseases you're essentially guaranteed if the mother has that disease to have that disease did i get that right leah you did yeah wow the mitochondria has its own little genome right (laughs) And it's the powerhouse of the cell. I was just about to say, <laughs> yes. if you remember anything from from girl high power, biology. girl power. <laughs> <laughs> the mitochondria is the power. Why does that stick so well? Everybody, I don't know. That. It's the same reason that yesterday when we were in the Kroger parking lot, Bradley saw the the little plastic six pack can holder. Mm-hmm. You know the ones, and he was and he Gotta never saw this commercial. But he knows from me and Crystal. He was like, I don't know, get that. It's going to kill the sea turtles. And we live in Tennessee. <laughs> I know. He has seen one sea turtle in Florida, 12 hours away. But he's worried about them because of the impact of that commercial 
on his parents. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know. I know. And I mean, you know, we'll sometimes be at, you know, a, a an event or something where, I mean, people are, you know, just like throwing away recyclable stuff in the regular trash and you know it's like there's no concern for environmentalism but if somebody spots one of those six-pack cans so they shut go down. immediately yes yeah. where are the scissors does anybody have yeah. an army knife we oh yeah care of this yeah there was oh, there was one time where i almost tossed it in the trash without thinking about it and I, like i immediately saw the commercials and the sea turtles and you know dawn dish soap and all this other stuff i don't know and i was like oh no i i can't i'm a horrible human being i pull it right <laughs> back out uh so i have a question about uh where or where where did this all begin not the sea turtle commercial <laughs> um but where did these we keep saying variations and uh i think most people understand that that's changes so mm -hmm. where did these changes begin for this genetic variation um can you talk a little bit about the origins of it and, and how this all started in the beginning what what have you so the kind of variation that we're talking about this is very very common genetic variation so it, it's it's ancient i mean it is as old as humanity itself and and this actually is one of the one of the things that i think is sort of like incredibly profound but we don't really talk about it this way that psychiatric disorders you know are really like if we think about why do they exist, like why is schizophrenia a you know a thing that that people deal with? Why is depression something that we experience? Why do these things happen to people? It's because it's actually baked into our human genome. It is part of our humanity. It is part of what it means to be human that we that we have the capacity for psychosis that we have the capacity for depth of tremendous depression that we also have the capacity for incredible creativity you know as as jane illustrates <laughs> um you know these these things are all woven into our human genome. Well, it really offers some kind of an advantage, right? Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because that has been a theory. Um, but there's, there really isn't any genetic evidence that, um, that these variations have been under any kind of positive selection. So the existing kind of evolutionary um, data that we have really suggests that they are just not under strong negative selection, but that they haven't really provided uh, a, a, an advantage that would be 
positively selected for so that they basically just hang out in that space of genetic drift where they're not experiencing strong positive or negative selection. But let me just push on this a little bit. Aren't there studies that show an association between handedness, mental health, and creativity? So there are studies that have looked in particular at um, genes associated with schizophrenia and creativity. And there's some indication that some subsets of those genes um, may have influences on both traits. But I would say that the data there is um, is really like at the preliminary stage. Yeah. It's not super strong yet. Um, and if you think about, you know, what, what we were just talking about that, like that these variations, they are very much a part of our human experience. It's not surprising that they would have kind of uh, relationships with other traits, right? So there are like genetic correlations or, um, you know, the, I guess another way to put that is some of the same genes that are involved in, um, you know, whether a person develops autism or schizophrenia also um, play a role in our sleep biology and our, you know, developmental milestones. And, you know, they're really all about the way that our brains are wired. And there's just a ton of diversity in the way that our brains are wired. And some of that diversity leads to depression. Some of that diversity leads to psychosis. Some of that diversity leads to creativity, neurodiversity. Um, one of the sort of uh, primary um, discoveries really from this field has been that there are essentially no binaries, right? There's no like strict line between ill and well when it comes to mental health, mm, just like wow. there are no strict lines between ill and well when it comes to something like type 2 diabetes. You know, you can have pre-diabetes, you can be sort of on the cusp of, um, uh, you know, of uh, insulin resistance, but not quite there. It's the same thing for psychiatric conditions. Wow, that's really fascinating. Didn't know that. Jane, you were going to say something? Uh, yeah, well... <laughs> This is just so fascinating. I mean, seriously, and you are just explaining everything so beautifully she that is. I understand it. I mean, um, so I'm left-handed, mm -hmm. and I was, and I would, but that's so that makes me right-brained, right? So if I'm right-brained, then I would necessarily be more creative in my in my uh, makeup, right? Um, how much of that did I inherit? It doesn't even really matter to me <laughs> how much. I come from my father was left-handed and my father was very creative and was uh, an actor and, and uh, just beautiful singer. And um, so, you know, I figured I got it from my father. I don't know any further than that because my dad was adopted, but, um, but I find it so interesting. I want to know how much, as you were talking, how much environment mm -hmm. has to do with wow. it. I mean, you know, uh, 
to me, you can have the the creative ability, super creative ability, yeah. but be stifled, you know, be and, and it's never allowed to be nurtured. It's never allowed to grow. So how much of that is environment? Would you call it environment? Uh, maybe there's another word for it. Yeah, I know. Geneticists basically think of anything that's not a gene as being environment. <laughs> but, <I> mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but when you talk to people who actually study, I'm so excited. <laughs> right. Then there's, you know, I mean, there are a, a lot of ways of like classifying environmental factors, right? There's, and you can even think about some factors that are actually both genetic and environment. Right. I was going to say they're also not binary. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. So one of my favorite examples of this is um, is BMI, right? So there is a strong genetic. What's, what's a BMI? I'm sorry. Oh, sorry, body mass index. So yeah. So your the relation the the ratio between your height and weight basically, and um, and so there's a a really strong genetic contribution to um to your sort of weight set point. You might think of that, um, but it also then creates an environment in your body, right? So if you are a person who carries more um, subcutaneous fat, that is going to change the <laughs> yeah, me as well. Kevin's pointing to himself. <laughs> it looks good on you, Kevin. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> that then Please carry, carry on, Leah. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. That then changes how your body responds to other factors too, and and it's not strictly environment or genetics. It's a it's a blend of the two, um, and so you know I think when we think when we ask, well, how important is environment? I think it's fair to say that environment is just as, and in many cases, more important than genomic um, influences. Interesting. Thank uh, you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I hope I'm remembering correctly from like the psych courses I've taken at Penn and high school, but um, when we've talked about especially like psychiatric disorders. Um, they're carrying a greater risk in the genome. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard often that it's like a trauma trigger that will awaken um, that, you know, generations of uh, a lineage might carry that specific constellation of genes um, that puts them at risk for the psychiatric disorder, Mm. but it's not necessarily made manifest. So I don't know if that's an oversimplification um, or if you have anything to say about that. Yeah, I think actually you expressed that really well. Yes. Um, what you're yeah what you're talking about here is is what we call a gene by environment interaction um which is basically the idea that you know two people might have the same kind of level of genetic um susceptibility to developing a, a psychiatric illness but the experience of environmental risk factors like trauma or um infection um uh let's see I'm trying to think of some of the others that are really well known medications yeah oh yeah mm-hmm. medications but and and also um illicit drug uh use as well um, what about diet what you eat does mm-hmm. that ever have an effect i mean the kind yeah. of yeah Ch- chocolate think- has to be making it better 
<laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and and these kinds of of gene by environment interactions are sometimes also kind of uh, unique to the particular disorder. So, for example, cannabis use can be a trigger for psychosis in people with high genetic risk for schizophrenia. And that's actually one of the ways that we're thinking about using, you know, some of these new genomic tools like genetic risk scores to help people kind of gauge, you know, what are the sorts of behaviors that they really want to be careful about in their own lives, right? Um, so say you have a family history of schizophrenia and, um, and you know, you get your own personal genetic risk score back and it turns out that you're, you know, kind of on the higher end, you know, you may not want to uh, engage in too much cannabis use because that is a known risk factor. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so what I asked earlier that Kevin just tried to ignore because, you know, he likes to take <laughs> over the podcast, even though he let me be co-host. Um, it was a slight hijack. It was. It was. He was like, start us off. And then he just took <laughs> off. Uh, so one of the things that we talked about, though, were, were the functional seizures. And I'll be honest, I didn't know anything about this before. But when you brought this up and then in the context of the last podcast, I just thought it was so interesting because it really does have such a direct impact on how someone's uh, care is administered mm -hmm. in the healthcare setting. So give us a little bit of a background on how that conversation started up in the science that um, you're, uh, you help publish. Yeah. So, okay. I'm going to take, I'm going to take a, like a big step back because I do want to sort of also give you some context for why I am kind of drawn to these um, boundary conditions, you know, these, these conditions that, that people have that don't necessarily fall really neatly into a particular specialty, right? So like if you show up at the doctor and you have an irregular heartbeat, they know who to refer you to, right? They'll send you to a cardiologist. Um, but a lot of times when, especially when it's a condition that just hasn't really been very well researched and we don't really know much about it and we don't really understand its biology very well, we don't understand what causes it. <sighs> doctors don't really know who to send you to, right? And you can end up sort of bouncing around from different specialties and, and oftentimes um, you'll end up in psychiatry and sometimes that's the right place and sometimes it's not the right place. Um, and so I'll, I'll give you a, an example. Um, you know, today, pretty much everybody, in the US knows what Crohn's disease is. I mean, everybody has heard of it or, ha you know, know somebody who either has it or, you know, has a, has some connection to it. You've right. got it on TV, whatever. 25 years ago or 30 years ago, that was not the case. Crohn's disease was not very well understood. Um, and my mother, who had had these kind of mysterious flare-ups of pain and fever and um and they always seem to be stress triggered um after my father passed away she started having just terrible terrible symptoms i mean going you know having to call an ambulance in the middle of the night 
going to the um, emergency room and nobody could figure out what was wrong with her. Um, and finally, her doctor just became so frustrated with her that he actually yelled at her in his waiting room. Jeez, said, oh my God. You need to see a psychiatrist. This is all in your head. There is nothing wow. I can do for you. I'm done with you as a patient. I don't want to see you in my office anymore. Amazing. She was really lucky that at one of those um, times that she had been brought in through the emergency department, they consulted a, um, a GI surgeon who just hit the books. I mean, he didn't know what was wrong with her either, but he started to do some research. And a week later, he called her up and he said, hey, I think I found it. I think I found what might be going on with you. Um, and I think you might have Crohn's disease. And within one more week, she was in the hospital for a resectioning surgery. So they had figured out what was wrong with her. They were, you know, they were addressing it with, with a surgical intervention. Part of the reason that her doctor was ready to send her to a psychiatrist was that he did recognize um, that her symptoms got worse with stress, that her symptoms had gotten worse with grief. Um, and so he then attributed all of her symptoms to her mental health. Right. 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 And so I think that fundamentally we have had this separation historically between psychiatry, neurology, and the rest of medicine. And a lot of people may not even really realize that, but in almost all academic medical centers, these are separate departments, right? So there's a department of medicine, there's a separate department of psychiatry, there's a separate department of neurology. They sometimes even have separate hospitals, right? There'll be a, yep. the psychiatric right. hospital, there'll be the main hospital. And this kind of separation has really caused, I think, um, a major gap in our understanding of health conditions that really sit at the intersection of those domains. And just to say this, as you move forward with this story, um, the other part of that story is that the medical record in psychiatry mm -hmm. is often protected in ways that prevents it from being shared the same time that we might share the rest of the record. So if you're trying to do research mm -hmm. to bring together a psychiatric and a neurologic or a psychiatric and a medical illness, you basically can't without a lot of additional homework. Yes. Um, so I, I think it was about five or six years ago that um, I was actually just driving home from work one day and I heard on NPR a story about people who were experiencing what are called functional seizures. So these are um, seizures that look very much, you know, if you were to witness it, it looks very much like a, a, a grand mal seizure. You know, there's um, and and the experience of it um, is similar, but in some ways different. So people who are experiencing functional seizures often um, dissociate. So they don't they're not consciously aware of what is happening uh, of the you know, the the seizure. Um, and they can have, you know, a range of um, 
sort of impairment from the presence of these seizures. They might occur just once. They might occur, you know, 15 times a day. So it really can be incredibly um, debilitating. The difference between these kinds of seizures and epileptic seizures is that functional seizures don't show any kind of um, electrical abnormality on an EEG. So oftentimes the way that patients come to um, come to attention is, you know, they they have their first seizures. A doctor will put them on um, an anti-epileptic medication, which doesn't work for them because their seizures are not caused by an epileptic event. So after some period of time where the medications aren't working, they're eventually referred to uh, video EEG monitoring, which is where they you know, put the EEG cap on um, and they monitor the electrical activity in the brain and they monitor the person by video recording. And this usually, you know, this can take anywhere from like a, a day to three or four days. I mean, it's it's a pretty involved process. So not not everybody even gets this level of care. But for those who are able to come to, you know, a center like the one that we have at Vanderbilt, they then can, you know, can get one of these assessments. And then when it's discovered that, you know, they're having these seizure events, but there's no associated um, electrical abnormalities, then oftentimes patients were just being sort of dismissed as like, well, this is in your head or you're making this up or, you know, the, this is, you know, attention seeking behavior. Um, the interesting or one interesting thing about this is that it was also occurring in about, uh, well, maybe a better way of saying it is that about 75% of the patients who experience these kinds of seizures are women. And it was very difficult to, um, to gain traction on research because neurology didn't know what to do with these patients. Psychiatry didn't know what to do with these patients. Like they were really falling in, you know, between the cracks of the, this kind of separation um, in the, the domains. And so, um, so this story that I heard on NPR was really all about the kind of uh, medical stigma that these patients were experiencing and how difficult it was for them to get, um, you know, kind of proper integrated care between neurology and psychiatry because um, nobody really understood the, the condition very well. And it occurred to me that, you know, at Vanderbilt, we had a, an epilepsy monitoring unit. We had this biobank. We had incredible electronic health records. Right. We stood to actually be able to conduct one of the largest studies to date of functional seizures and to try to understand, you know, what were the major risk factors that we identified? Um, were there other conditions that um, that were related to development of functional seizures. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I can't ask it. I'll forget it. Um, it almost sounds to me as a layperson. It sounds to me like if you can't see it on an MRI or on a scan or whatever, right? Oh, 
um, then it must be psychiatric. Yeah. If it's physiological in that sense, then it must be psychiatric. That is, I mean, that's has been my opinion that I get from, or my, uh, the look that I get from doctors, the Mm -hmm. way they handle things, you know, well, I can't figure out what it is. So you need to go to a psychiatrist, which I think everyone should go and get their head (laughs) shrunk every now and then anyway. (laughs) But, and I know in my life, I know that when I'm stressed or when something's going on in my life, that's really, really upsetting and depressing. I get sick. I mean, I can get sick. And so I know that the the mind has a huge power over the body, but there are some things that the mind cannot control. But I also believe that outlook has a lot to do with it too. Mm-hmm. You know, being positive and trying to lift yourself up emotionally can at least help your body to fight off whatever it is that's uh, invading it. I don't know, but. Yeah, no, I think you really put your finger on, on like the heart of the issue, which is that the, the mind and the body are interconnected, right? Uh, the mind influences the body, but it is also a product of the body. So it's, you know, there, there isn't a clear separation. And, um, and I think that, yeah, like medicine is um, is really, I feel like only now kind of getting to a place of um, appreciating the the value of integrating mental health with medicine, right? So that it's not this strict separation of we treat the mind in psychiatry and we treat the body in medicine or neurology, you know. Um, so the yeah, so the functional seizures work then um, really took off when I had a grad student who was also interested in it, and um, and we ended up uh, using our EHR um, population to investigate both the some of the potential um, environmental causes. So um, one of the previously published um, strong associations is was with sexual assault trauma. And we um, replicated that really strongly. So we found a very strong relationship between disclosures of sexual assault trauma in the EHR and um, the presence of functional seizures. Um, and in fact, the way that I after this work, the way that I kind of came to understand or to think about functional seizures is is that they are in some sense a physical manifestation of, um, of or can be a physical manifestation of trauma exposures. Um, and, and so the, um, the work that we're doing now is also looking at some of the genetic contributions to functional seizures because you know, there are a lot of people who experience trauma, not all of them develop functional seizures. So there are also likely to be other environmental and genetic contributions that um, that contribute to this. And and it may yeah, be- Leah, this is, this is fascinating. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious, when we talk about equity, mm-hmm. is there something that we've learned that makes women less likely to be diagnosed or I mean so what's what, tell me tell me the equity piece here that that everyone would like to hear yeah 
Um, I mean, I think, you know, historically, um, there has been a lot of dismissal of women's pain in medicine um, and of symptoms that are not easily explainable um, that present in women, symptoms mm -hmm. of conditions that um, that just present differently between men and women. Right? Like chronic fatigue syndrome. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and and that's actually something that, you know, there is a pretty robust body of literature, even, you know, documenting those equity differences. Oh, for sure. Um, and, and in fact, in this study that I was just mentioning, we found that one of the reasons that functional seizures are so overrepresented in female patients compared to male patients is that the exposure of sexual assault trauma is more common among wow. women than it is among men. So that accounted for about a quarter of that overrepresentation. That oh my gosh. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as you're saying all this, I am thinking at like the patient level and I think about black woman who's gone in, who's had, you know, sexual assault has experienced one of these seizures and is trying to explain to a provider what her symptoms are and getting not only uh, told that these seizures are in her head, she's not able to explain the sexual assault, you know, and, and be heard. And she's a black woman who are consistently not heard in the healthcare system. And so I can't help but to think of the harms we have now done to a patient like you know, this imaginary black woman I have in my mind that looks a lot like Kevin, by the way. Um, with you were just really doing it today, aren't you? <laughs> it's, the, it's the pre holiday set or the post holiday sass. Um, <laughs> but I, I just think that we have not, as a healthcare system, helped this person. We have harmed them. Uh, and I can't help but to think that my imaginary person is probably real times a thousand. Yeah. Um, so kind of taking back that instance but also what you said before is that these genetic variants these these things that you're finding in the genome have been there since the beginning you know they're they're there they're here to stay so how if that's the case how do we do better because they're not going anywhere we we need to recognize that they're not that they're not leaving us anytime soon. And right. so instead of trying to just give us, give everyone a pill or, or throw them in a hospital or throw them in jail, well, how can we do better? Leah, fix all of our problems. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, if I may, I, as a, as a patient, like again, you know, as a normal person, I have, I understand exactly where y'all are coming from as far as uh, females being treated differently than males. And there has always been that disparity because it's a form of misogyny is what it is, isn't it? And it starts with, well, she's just a whiny woman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's emotional. 
Yeah. So there is in that instance, there is an original sin and it was committed by the men. That's that's just what it was. It was their Well, you know, it's their attitude toward women or in most cases, their fear of women. And well, you know, don't get me started. (laughs) I mean, it is what it is. You know, you got to learn to deal with it. But um, but I there is a difference in the treatment. That's why as a woman, no offense, Kevin, I prefer to go to a female doctor because a man just isn't going to understand where I'm coming from. You know, he's going to look at me and he's going to say, well, just stop crying. That's all. You know, <laughs> if, you're, if, you're, if you're feeling sad, do something that makes you happy. You know, it's like, no, no. Anyway, I just, yeah, I have always felt that way. I have always felt that as a woman, I'm more comfortable with a woman, a doctor, and I trust her more, not as a physician, but as a, as a female physician to be able to understand and um, perhaps be able to say, you know, let's figure this out together. Maybe we can actually put our heads together and figure out what's wrong. But anyway, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm I'm glad you said that. And I, I totally agree. And that's been my experience as well. And I, I would say that it's also my husband's preference, right? So as a man, he still prefers to go to a-, a Isn't that interesting? Well, that's yeah. great, hey. Well, I mean, what I've experienced is before these were called functional seizures, they were often called pseudo seizures. And when I was at Hopkins, I actively participated in what's called the diagnostic referral clinic. We often saw patients who had a diagnosis of pseudo seizures. 20 or so percent of the time, they also had real seizures, like EEG demonstrated real seizures. And so the question was always dismissed about why would they do these extra, have these extra quote behaviors. When I went to, um, when I went to Vanderbilt, and we opened up the electronic health information exchange in Memphis, we actually found a patient who had had 90 some visits to the emergency department. And the belief was that these were because of pseudo seizures that he was concocting to get out of paying a um, um, a, a restaurant bill. Um, He'd gone to all of these different ADs. This was a whole story. I was a party to that story. We saw the data. No one understood it. They thought this really must be the secondary gain he was looking for. It would be fascinating to go back and look at the, to to ST's point, the morbidity associated with the diagnosis, especially if there was something we could do about it. Mm -hmm. So, So Leah, the question is, so we now know that there's this equity issue. Is there something that we are disproportionately not doing? I want you to leave that sigh in the, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to think about it, but because. Well, I mean, to your point, does treating the anxiety mm-hmm. decrease, for example, in other words, as much as you hate to do it, does recognizing that there are medical therapies now associated with many mental health um, diagnoses, should we be treating those more aggressively in, or searching for them more aggressively in patients who have functional seizures as opposed to what Jane is saying, which is maybe writing it off and saying, yeah, women do stuff like that. 
Yeah, I mean, the one of the things that was really exciting about um, doing this work at Vanderbilt was that the Vanderbilt Neurology Department and Psychiatry Department um, are really, really highly collaborative. And so we now have um, a functional seizures clinic that actually integrates neurology and psychiatry. Um, and the reality is that it's a really hard condition to treat and it requires multiple specialties, right? And multiple specialties, I think, um, who recognize that um, that the treatment is not going to be as simple as, you know, here, take this pill and, you know, everything is, is going to be better, but that it's, um, it's really the management of a chronic condition that we have a poor understanding of. And that I think requires physicians who are highly compassionate and willing to trust their patients, that their patients want something better, right? That they are coming to them for help because they want something better. Um, and and so I, I think, you know, we talk a lot about like medical mistrust and mistrust that patients have of the medical system. I think one of the things that we don't talk about as much is like physician mistrust <laughs> and the mistrust that physicians have of patients, right? This sort of skepticism that physicians have of patients that I think um, can be kind of equally damaging to that therapeutic relationship. Um, so I think, you know, when it comes to like, how do we improve the, the equity issues? I mean, that's really tough because a lot of it sort of stems from the, the social, structural, you know, political factors that cause environments to be different for men and women and, and gender diverse folks and people of all different racial identities. I mean, those things are like, I think the 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 seeds that um, that have to be dealt with in order to really address the equity issues. What we can do right now in the kind of immediate care of people who are experiencing the consequences of these things is to create systems that care for the whole person, right? So that they're not constantly bouncing back and forth between neurology and psychiatry and medicine and, and nobody is listening to them, right? That instead we have much more kind of integrated systems to actually learn from patients what it is that they need and how we can support them better and how we can develop new treatments. And, and it becomes a, becomes the learning healthcare system, right? right? So that we're not just building on what we already know, but that we're learning new things from being a little bit more open-minded about how patients are presenting to the, to the healthcare system in general. Well, you know, what, what I've observed, and I'd, I'd be curious what you all think about this. I know we have to close pretty soon here, but what, what I've observed is that 
one of the reasons why people may choose a particular physician has to do not just with that physician's ability to objectively identify a course of action, but also has a lot to do with whether they believe it's going to work, right? Um, people love, and I've been, I've been around these people, oncologists who actually say things like, we're going to fight this. We're going to, we're going to do this. We're going to motivate you to, to, to end healthcare to make you better. And I see Jane's head nodding a lot here. And what I wonder about, quite frankly, is the other side of that, which is, I don't know what's causing these seizures you're having. They're not showing up on an EEG. Go see a psychiatrist, which to me sounds like I give up and psychiatrists mm -hmm. are see you because you're crazy versus, um, for example, you know, functional seizures can often be caused by issues that relate to PTSD or stress, or maybe perhaps even a medication. And maybe there's therapies that are out there that involve CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy or psychoeducation. And maybe there's things that a psychiatrist knows how to do way better than me that can treat this population. Do you see that it's that it's that lack of energy that might also be associated with creating an environment that is that that forces a disequity or a lack of equity yeah absolutely and and i think that you know you don't have to have the answers to have the um the enthusiasm or the drive towards wellness right exactly you can, you can say exactly. um i don't know what is causing these functional seizures but I am your partner in helping you to control them and helping you to um, to live with them. And we're going to come up with strategies and we're going to bring in everybody who has good ideas on how to support you and how to how to treat them. Um, and some of those folks are in psychiatry and some of those folks are in neurology and some of those folks are in medicine. And we don't care where they are. <laughs> if they you know, have ideas, we're going to bring them into the team. I, I think the biggest inequity that you've been talking about is actually between the physician and the patient. Mm -hmm. That to me is the biggest inequity because <clears throat> the physician, present company excluded, of course, the physician, you know, what is our normal person attitude about doctors? They think they know everything. You know, they think they're God. They think they know everything. Well, the biggest thing I think a doctor can do when I go in is listen to me, listen to what I'm saying and respect, have a little respect for me. I'm not educated in medicine, so I can't tell you what's wrong with me. That's going to be your job, but I can tell you how it's manifesting in me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not stupid. I'm not an idiot and I'm not crazy. Yes, I may need to go see a psychiatrist. That doesn't mean I'm crazy, you know. So I just, I think that the biggest inequity is between the doctor and the patient. It's begins with the attitude, the patient trusting the doctor and the doctor respecting the patient. Beautifully said. Wow. Really? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Ellie? Yeah. And honestly, that's something that's come up in my English courses at Penn too. I, there are a lot of students that are pre-med and yet they're an English major. And even just talking about, you know, why do we spend our stuff? I, I took a course on like trauma literature, specifically from the Holocaust. And we're like, why do we spend our time with this? Like, how can each of us take it into our respective fields? It was a class, not just of English majors, but kind of spread across um, 
all the humanities and disciplines. And one of them was talking about like patient and doctor specifically, just the average length of time that a doctor spends with a patient, <clears throat> excuse me, is very short actually. And one of the the takeaways that we can um, bring to all of our professions is just the ability to listen mm -hmm. um, and spend that time and empathy with a patient. And so I find that really interesting, just that I think it's a, a multidisciplinary practice to just be with someone and listen. Yeah. I, the one thing that I would add to that is that, um, and kind of going back too, to Jane, what you said about feeling more comfortable with a female doctor is that medicine is evolving. It is an ever-changing field. And, you know, Leah, you said you heard this thing about functional seizures on NPR, you know, and here you are doing this scientific discovery. I wonder if the folks who were interviewed for that study, you know, even know about the literature that you produced. And I know of doctors who are still practicing, who still believe and use literature from the 50s and 60s that are very out of date. I mean, think about how long that is ago, and they're still using that literature in their practice. And so this is such an evolving field, especially when we think about psychiatry. Um, you know, I think about, I watched this documentary about Ellis Island and the hospital system that they use for immigrants when they were coming in. And that's actually where some of the terms like idiot and crazy and dumb started being used to classify immigrants with certain depressive sy symptoms from their travels and the trauma of getting to America. And they called them idiots and crazy because they didn't meet a certain criteria to be accepted into the US. Here, we still use those terms to talk about someone all the time, and it's just a part of our slang. Uh, and I think about things like that, and I just think, man, like we have so much to do to update uh, ourselves and the field of medicine to use, you know, updated science that we have. Yeah. It just doesn't always get out, or people just don't always read it, or you know, maybe it's that we're so inundated. But um, it'd be really interesting to know how many people have been able to really hear or read what y'all done. And actually said, okay, now I'll change my perspective on this and I can change my my type of care for a patient I see with a functional seizure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, so good. Um, so first of all, Jane, um, I know you've had so much lived experience and our listeners can't see just how engaged you are about all this. And so I wanted to thank you again for kind of personally sharing a whole lot of stuff about yourself that doesn't typically show up in one of your fabulous songs. <laughs> right. It always shows up in my songs. And that's <laughs> what I was going to say next, which is given this conversation, is there a song that you know we should be sharing of yours at the oh. end of the podcast, maybe for the listeners to think about? I don't know. You know, I, um, I just found out that a song that um, an old song of mine, I always say the best thing, and I've been blessed to have a few number one records and the best thing that comes out of the best thing that has nothing to do with the quality of the song itself. <laughs> that has more to do with the marketing and the promotion <laughs> and, and the artist who cuts it. But anyway, I digressed. Um, but by, I, by the way, no, no, no. I have to say something here. And, I, and this is sort of meant to be serious. I was watching the last episode of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And in this last episode, spoiler alert, she mm -hmm. 
looks at something she wrote to herself in a time capsule, which is the word don't. <laughs> and later in the episode, they explain what happened and what it had to do because they go back and forth in time in the last few episodes. And what it had to do with is don't sell yourself short and don't allow yourself to say things like it was the team who did that. You did it and you know it. So I totally believe that the song that I wrote last week on chat GPT or last episode <laughs> is not making a number one because it does not have your skill, so <laughs> not buying it. <laughs> Who doesn't have the right team? Everybody's got a team now. You have to have a team. But that's right. Okay, back to your point. <laughs> uh, really, I forget what we were talking. <laughs> you were, you, I was just saying we were talking about songs, and you were saying that there's an old song of yours. Oh yes, yes, yes. So a uh, number one song is I call it the gift that keeps on giving because after it's a big hit, you know, oh, a couple of years will go by and. You know, everybody knows the song, at least if they were born in that generation, they did. Everybody knows the song and, and the artist will still be performing it. And then they put, if the artist does well enough, they put out a compendium of, of their hits and they, you know, it's uh, Reba's greatest hits or whatever. And, um, and hopefully you'll get that song will be put on there again. And so with this particular song that has happened already, it was put on, it was a hit back in the late 1980s. That's how old this song is and how old I am. And it was uh, a big hit for Reba. And then a couple of years ago, she did a, you know, a compilation a box set and she put it on there and, oh, that was wonderful. That was nice. And I just found out that not only is it going on a new project, or it's on the project, she wrote a book. And this is, the book is called, um, oh my gosh, I'm totally blowing it. Like, I'm not that fancy, I think is what it's called. <laughs> that, and she has an album to go along with it that you, you can buy <laughs> to go along with it. And, uh, and she re-recorded 10 of her favorite number ones. And the one that I wrote is, is one of those songs. So she went in and completely re-recorded it, which is like having a brand new cut. And By the way, it's called Not That Fancy, Simple Lessons on Living, and then other words I can't see, probably loving and some other stuff. I would assume, I would assume, yes. So Here it is. Anyway, wait, so I'll this say it again, wait, wait, wait. It's called Not That Fancy, Simple Lessons on Living, Loving, Eating, and... Bust, dusting off your boots. There you go. It's got good recipes in it, too. I mean, it's like, you know, every little facet of life. But anyway, so I'm very, very happy and fortunate that she put this song on this new project, which is great. But if you all want to hear it, it is a complete and total psychological analysis of what I went through. It's called The Last One to Know, and it's about my ex-husband. And it just, it's about me, really, but about him. And I did make a couple of little changes in the story, but 99.9% .9 of it is true. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting because I learned through writing the song that you're never the last one to know. You're always the first one to know. You're just the last one to admit it. <laughs> so anytime someone says, well, you know, he must have been the last one to know. You wrote about it. I go, no such thing anymore. Yeah. But, um, well, anyway. I would love to share that with our listeners. So would you so, send me a copy? Of the song? Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, now her newest version will not be released until October. That's when the um, you can pre-order the book and pre-order the CD. But um, I have not been given a copy of the new version. But I promise you that when it comes out, I will give you a copy of it. And I guess there's the original. Yeah, I'll take the original. Yeah, I'll send you a copy of the original in MP3. Uh, Jane, I need you to know that my favorite artist growing up was Reba McIntyre. Oh, my word. My first concert in fifth grade was Reba McIntyre. And I know every word to that song. (laughs) So the fact that I am sitting here amongst royalty right now to me. uh, Seriously, my first concert was Reba McIntyre. And it was, I don't remember what year it was. I was in fifth grade. And she was on tour with Brooks and Dunn and Linda Davis. And it was in Richmond's Coliseum in Richmond, Virginia. And I remember her singing that song. Like, it was, oh, yeah, that was good. Oh, that's great. That makes me feel good. Thank you, SD. I I appreciate it. Um, Absolutely. I had a, you know, I grew up in New York City and... In, during the season, my dad and my mom would take me to Carnegie Hall for the children's concerts. I was raised on classical music, so that's yeah. another story. Um, but <clears throat> and um, so Carnegie Hall was like a second home to me. I took ballet lessons across the street at Steinway Hall, and it just that whole Fifty Seventh uh, Street was was big in my life. And when my song, when um, I've had a few songs cut by Reba, but when this song, the last one to know, was her single, she did a show up at Carnegie Hall. Aww. And oh, yeah. And so she called and said, do you want to be at the show? And I said, I'll be there. And my of husband course. Up, right for the show. And that was without a doubt. Probably the most amazing thing that's ever happened in my life. First of all, she's a great performer and she puts on a fabulous show and Carnegie Hall has the best acoustics in the world. So um, it was just amazing. Truly, truly amazing. It was almost like, okay, if I die now, it's all right. So Jane, the next time you get a chance to go to Carnegie Hall, I want you to promise you're going to invite all of us. (laughs) (laughs) I'll wait. Uh, I'll be there in October, but not for this. (laughs) Not going to promise anything. I figured you'd do that. (laughs) All right. Well, look, we should stop because this has been great. And I love leaving our listeners wanting more. Um, So thanks, everybody. Leah, thank you so much for both giving us kind of genetics, genomics. um, Amazing, Leah. Thank you. Really. Thank you. This was really so much fun. I think... What's really interesting for me about this podcast is that uh, before we start talking, I was thinking, is this even the the right topic? Because, you know, this is very heavy on genetic data. Right. And it's something that a lot of people don't really think about um, in connection to, I think, informatics, because nobody really sees this data on the back end side of the EHR. You might see like, you know, if you have some genetic results, you might see that information if you've had genetic testing, but you don't really see all the nitty gritty, big populated data sets that people work on like Leah. Yeah, and what's great is Leah really rolled with the punches. You know, we we asked her to break it down to like genetics 101. Yeah. She just nailed it. So I honestly, you know, I know genetics pretty well, but there were some aspects of the way we talked about it that actually made me think a lot more about the whole issue of variants and mental health and just the number of diseases that we're likely to discover that make up things like depression and schizophrenia. 
it's clear, you know, we don't know much about it. And I thought what was great is that Jane really got into that conversation too, because of people she knows and experiences mm-hmm. and had a great song for us to play, which we'll play at the end here. Yeah. And you know, Jane and Leah brought up great examples of people that they know who have been affected by mental health um, or they've been told they have mental health conditions, but really they had a physical condition that no one had really dove into to discover because they really uh, ignored when they said they had pain or they had some other symptom that they couldn't quite fit into a normal condition box. And so, you know, you wonder how often people will say I have pain or I have X symptom and they get ignored and told it's all in your head when really it is linked to an actual condition. It's just that a a provider or clinician hasn't really gotten into that uh, discovery of that condition yet. Yeah, I mean, I was shocked about the equity issues here. I really had never, it had never even occurred to me that there were patients who were more likely to be told things are essentially untreatable in their head, not real conditions, who might actually be African-American or in urban locations. It just, I mean, that was a shock for me. Yeah, yeah, I really wonder how many conditions um, or how how much of a disservice we've done in the healthcare system to people who are already disadvantaged or underserved. No doubt. There's these patients who probably should be getting treated and don't. I mean, the whole issue of seizures that I used to call pseudo seizures, I myself was spreading this whole myth that these patients really don't have real seizures, where these patients have a completely made up disease only to find out that there really is something else to it um, and that there are equity issues. But I think that's what we're going to learn this whole year. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm working hard on a couple of other speakers, like I said, that I think are going to just blow our minds. So stay tuned. Anyway, everybody, thanks for listening. As always, if you have any questions or other ideas for the podcast, just send a, a message to me at KB Johnson MD on Twitter. Or you can look for Informatics in the Round comments on podbean.com. See you later. Goodbye. I didn't see the fire burn to ashes. I couldn't feel the winds of change. I was lost inside the passion. I should have felt it when you touched me I should have seen it in your eyes But I believe you really loved me Why can't I believe you've said goodbye Oh, why is the last one to It would be easier to face the morning